0: Well, good morning. I'm not Jason Lancaster. My name is Curtis Watson. I've had the privilege of being a member here along with my wife for I think about 11 years. I count it one of the great, great blessings of my life, one of the things I'm most thankful for to have lived life with, with many of you for the last few years. And I'm thrilled to get a chance to preach again to you guys, to the church that I love. Uh, fair warning, though, the passage we are looking at today for the next half hour-ish is just A list of names. There is no manger yet. There's no angel appearing. There's no wise men, shepherds, or stable. Just a list of names. Merry Christmas. If there is a scripture ghetto where misunderstood, neglected, or often just skipped over biblical passages go, genealogy passages are so in there. However, before we are done, if you will hang with me through the bumpy ride, uh, I hope that each one of us will see ourselves in Jesus' family tree listed in these verses. And as we find ourselves a part of God's plan and family, I hope we can find joy and strength for this Christmas season. Let's pray before we start. Jesus, just as you drew near to us in your birth, life, death, and resurrection so long ago. We ask for you to join us and to open our eyes to truth from your word. It's through your blood and your accomplishment we ask this. Amen. Now we love us some origin stories, don't we? From the boy who lived, our fictional character Harry Potter, living in squalor in, under the stairs of his aunt's house growing up to great renown in the wizarding world, to modern day history makers like Nelson Mandela, uh, after spending years in prison, rising to lead South Africa out of apartheid. We are near obsessed with origin stories. Did this person rise from poverty? Did they have a disability as a child? Did they overcome great odds? Where an individual comes from, what they overcame early on in life, it bolsters their credibility, it opens our eyes, it gives, them, gives us understanding, and at times, it gives us great encouragement to who they are and what they've accomplished. This can be thrilling, enlightening, and encouraging in many cases. Uh, we, we even do this in small, small scales in our own life. Right now, my three sons continue to be fascinated by the fact that they are part Native American. You can see the picture. Go ahead and show that up. Uh, don't believe me? Take a look at the picture. Okay? <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to see, but there's two pale blondes there on the right and the, the, right the middle. And so you may ask yourselves, really, are you joking? Is this a joke? They're Native Americans. so I didn't say how much. I just said they're part Native Americans, okay? Uh, now, the knowledge, the knowledge that they are uh, a, a part of this tribe, the Choctaw Indians, is very, very interesting to my sons. I grew up in a small town in rural Oklahoma, and it's known as the Nine Tribes area, and so If my friends weren't part Native American, that was weird. And so to me, it wasn't all that interesting. But to my boys, this knowledge of their family tree opens up a window into another world, and it ties them to a seemingly mysterious and larger story than the middle-class white kids growing up on the mean streets of Evanston, Illinois. It's part of their origin story. We'll see what happens next. Our passage today is the necessary first steps in the most epic of all stories. It's a vital preamble of sorts to the Christmas story. The first few words of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 1, verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It can also be loosely translated to say the book of the new, geneal- the book of the new genesis wrought by Jesus Christ. Matthew intends his readers and us to think about creation, the very foundation of how the world came into existence. That's a bold statement. Matthew, you better back that up. Who is this Jesus? So before we continue on past verse 1, let's just look at the setting, who Matthew is writing to, and just a little bit about the people that would have first read these, these verses. First of all, Matthew is likely writing this at the, the latter part of the first or the early part of the second century towards the end of his life. And he's writing to predominantly Jewish Christians, Messianic Jews. Okay? There's a sprinkling of Gentile believers among their midst. Okay? The Roman Empire is increasingly hostile to Christians. Wave after wave of persecution rocks the early church. comes in waves throughout the first century, three centuries. Uh, Famously, Nero, emperor uh, during that first century, has thousands of Christians murdered just to help his uh, political cause and to get out of some uh, some close calls of his own. It's during that time that most likely Peter and Paul died under his rule. Not too long later, another emperor, Domitian, decides that everybody's got to swear fealty to him as emperor, and Christians don't do this, and that alienates them further because now they can't be in the military if they don't swear to him as a deity. And so now they're looked upon by their neighbors as people who won't go to war with them and for them. And so they're misunderstood further as cowards. There are other documents during this time that it was widely rumored that Christians were practicing incest and cannibalism in their highly secret ceremonies. It's completely wrong, but it was popular belief at the time. Not only that, these Jewish Christians have been taught since early childhood to to hope and pray for a great Messiah that would come back, throw off the pagan rule, and establish a new Davidic kingdom that would be even greater than before. So the Messiah to them was this great monarchy, this great rule that would throw off the oppression. They have had to adjust their expectations. No longer would they languish in exile or live in the promised land, but be forced to bend the knee to pagan rulers. How hard it must have been for this early band of believers to shift their focus from a militaristic Messiah to a suffering servant. Think of that, the expectations they had. So the government's hostile. They've had to leave behind hopes and dreams of a Messiah, but at least things at home are, are uh, settled and, and fine, right? Wrong. To follow Jesus was painful, not, because, not just because of government oppression and neighboring misunderstanding. But as one commentator wrote, to leave Judaism meant to move from one society to another. It involved the painful severing, not only of family ties, but being cut off from the whole life of a community upon which one was socially and economically dependent. For these believers, many have been cast out of their own families. They've lost jobs. Those who were the first to hear Matthew's gospel needed assurance that the upheaval they had thus far sustained was not in vain, that they didn't adopt an entirely new way of life for the wrong man. John the Baptist sent messengers when he was in prison. He had his own doubts, and they asked Jesus, Are you the one, or should we look for somebody else? It has never and will never be a small thing to name Jesus as the one true God, it's never been easy. And Matthew's audience knew this. So with this setting in mind, let's continue through this. We'll back up just again to verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nishon, and Nishon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat. And Shiltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abayud. And Abayud, the father of Eliakim, And Eliakim, the father of Atzor. And Atzor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Matham, And Motham, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, knowing everything we know about the people Matthew has in mind when writing, why in the world would he begin his account of the gospel, the miraculous gospel of Jesus Christ with a list of names. I mean, honestly, if you're looking to hook an audience, wouldn't wouldn't you start with uh, maybe the angel appearing to Mary or possibly the thundering sounds of soldiers coming in to murder boys in Nazareth, little boys? Or maybe start off, maybe this is even better, maybe start off later on with a couple of super cool miracles that Jesus did and tell this in flashbacks, Right? I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine a modern telling of this story, starting with, in a world where Aminadab was the father of Neshan. I wasn't sure I could do that before I took a drink of water. All right. Here is what's so fascinating. Matthew is painting a picture with this list of names, Remember, to his first readers, this is exactly what they needed to hear before telling them what Jesus did or said. They needed to hear his pedigree before telling them what he did or said. They needed to be sure that he was fulfilling the needed prophecies and covenants. Matthew knows the persecution and the alienation his people are facing. He wastes no time in getting to exactly what they needed to hear. We, We should approach this list like a modern resume or curriculum vitae would read to us today. And to the first or second century Jew, this first couple of names, it elicits a nodding of the head and a sigh of relief. Son of David, son of Abraham. Because not only are these names, Abraham and David, and their stories burned into their culture, these Jewish Christians know that there were two great promises that had to be fulfilled by this new Messiah. These covenants run like a spine through the Old Testament. And let's look at these briefly, starting in Genesis 12, verse uh, 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later on, the Davidic covenant, second Samuel chapter seven, verse twelve, God is speaking through the prophet Nathan to King David. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise you up, up I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom forever. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I have put away from you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus is the long-awaited fulfillment of these prophecies, son of David, son of Abraham. You can almost hear the music swelling as Matthew goes through the rest of this list of characters. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Judah, his brothers, the 12 tribes, from patriarchs to kings to prophets to heroes. Matthew traces Jesus' ancestors. It is hard to imagine a higher, greater, more illustrious list of names to have on a Messiah's resume. Both This is what every Israelite needed to hear. Further, this recitation of Jesus' ancestors would also serve to tie any Gentile Christian to a great and marvelous story. It's a royal family that heretofore Gentiles were on the outside of a fence looking longingly in, and now they are a part of this family. I don't know about you, but I love, uh, I love stories about post-apocalyptic societies, okay? This is, you know the stories where some natural or alien force or war or plague has caused much of uh, the population to die off, governments have collapsed, there's no plumbing, there's no uh, electrical, there's no, there's no communications, it's a free-for-all, right? And usually these stories, we, uh, we follow a band, maybe sometimes just a couple, but sometimes a, a, more than a few a band of ragtag, misfit, random people thrown together trying to survive against all odds. I love stories like this. And of course, like any father and husband, I see myself in the hero role as I, as I read and watch these, these shor- uh, shows, movies, and stories. Uh, I rise above my former office desk job nine-to-five to existence to become the toughest nails but with a heart-of-gold leader defending me and my own against marauding invaders who often, for some reason, ride motorcycles. I'm not really sure why. It's not just me, huh? I mean, I'm not the only one that has done that. I'm just saying I'm ready if it happens, okay? Israel, uh, before I move on, usually in this story, there is uh, a character that that people made along the way. There's this kind of hope that these people have of a better place. And often it's, it's kind of revealed in bits and pieces of the narrative. Uh, you know, like, like they meet a swarthy character along the way, and he says, I hear tell there's a place out east called Promiseville. They got warm beds and hot meals and high walls. I'm going there. You should come along. And so this hope drives the group. It keeps them going through hard times, and usually the deaths of minor and major characters. Okay? Israel is this group wandering from generation to generation with a hope and a promise of a great Messiah. That's how we need to look at them. The good times of the kings and the conquests and the monarchy and the wealth and the power and the influence are all in the rearview mirror. It's long gone. It's remembered in stories. One writer said it this way This birth that's about to happen is what Israel has waited for for 2,000 years. 2,000 years of waiting since that promise came to Abraham. I start multitasking if Netflix takes too long to load. If I have a bad couple of months at work, I'm online searching for a new career. I hate waiting, waiting is the worst. I want more money now. I want my daughter to be potty trained now. I want a better marriage now. I want a vacation now. I want relief now. Waiting is the worst. Jesus may be the long-awaited king and may have all the qualifications, but 2,000 years, I'm struck by how often in man's relationship with his creator and God that we are left waiting. Now it's here that if we're not careful as modern readers, we're going to miss something in this list of names. But Matthew's readers will not miss that there's a few strange people listed here. We have now seen the father of the great nation, Abraham. We've seen the great king, David. But a dissonant note is about to enter this song. Let's look a little more closely at verses 2 through 7. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac, the father of Jacob, And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. We've got all the patriarchs and the 12 tribes. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And later, verse 4, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Oddly, there are four women that Matthew goes out of his way to highlight in Jesus' family tree. Genealogies, lists of names like this, or any other list of names, never included women's names. Never. Some famous ones were known, like Sarah, Leah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Especially a list of ancestors meant to tie a proposed king to show royal kingship never had women's names. One Old Testament scholar I read said that so few women remembered in history that when later writers were trying to create Sunday school material or theological training material, they had to make up women's names for their curriculum. They had to make them up. Oh, Obed, he was married to uh, Becky. And, uh, you, know, you know, old Jotham, he was married to Leah. You know, they, they just had to make them up. Because there were so few women known historically. So for Matthew to list them here, it should draw our attention. And if you're really familiar with Bible stories, sometimes you don't, you don't hit that. And so Matthew's saying, look at these names. Remember, this list is supposed to be a modern resume. Okay, it's a list, it's a, it's a CV. Okay, so why are these names here? We may vaguely know their names, But let's find out how they fit into the origin story of our Savior. First of all, they are most likely, these women are most likely Gentiles, not Jews. That means they are outsiders in the Jewish community. Though Tamar was married to Judah's sons, she was Canaanite by birth. We know that Rahab was a Canaanite living in Jericho. Ruth was a Moabite who married into the Hebrew community. And it's safe to assume, though we don't quite know for sure, that Bathsheba was also a Hittite because she was married to Uriah the Hittite. Okay, so not only were these four women not Jews, Gentiles, they were women, but they at best have dubious reputations. I I had to be reminded of this one. Tamar's story is horrific. It's horrific. She was married to one of Judah's sons who died. She was married then later to another of Judah's sons who died. Without getting into too many gory details, she dresses up like a prostitute, seduces her own father-in-law, and conceives twin sons, Perez and Zerah. I'm not making that up. That's in your Bible. Rahab is definitely a celebrated character in Jewish lore, her bravery helping out the spies in Jericho. But let's not forget she was a prostitute running a brothel in Jericho, which evidently is the best place to hide in Jericho. Ruth is a character with, again, a mixed bag. The Moabite people were universally despised by the Jews because they were descendant from Abraham's brother, Lot, whose daughter's incestuous relationship with him produced the Moabite people, so they were just universally looked down upon. And Bathsheba is a tragic character who seems to be just carried along by the lust of her king, home from his wars and bored. And if she tried to resist King David, we don't have any knowledge of it. Hardly a hero of the faith. So why in the world are these people listed? Why are they pointed out and drawn attention to? Again, Grant Osborne says this, all these women were outsiders, many encased in scandal, yet all were chosen by God and made an essential part of the greatest story in all of history. The same truth was evident in Jesus' choice of his 12 disciples. He did not select the great teachers of the day. God chose a peasant in a small town and then had her give birth under suspicious, scandalous circumstances, speaking of Mary. In essence, Matthew is reminding us that the marginalized outsiders and sinners have always been a part of God's plan, always. That Israel was wrong for these generations to constantly assume that only people God cared about were righteous Jews. The great plans of our God have always included the entire world, Often Israel has ignored or fought God on this point. Listen again to the Abrahamic covenant, the last part of it. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. By including these sometimes sinful, often marginalized, and in two or three cases used and abused Gentile women, Matthew is anchoring us to this family tree of our Lord Jesus Christ outcasts and sinners, kings and heroes will all play a part in this grand salvation plan. There is a great cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews says, whom God has used, and just as he used them, he will use you for his masterful plan. When we fail or get frustrated with circumstances forced upon us, we need to remember God's plan to redeem himself marches on. And he often goes out of his way to include the seemingly most flawed people in this great redemption story. Another person said it this way, Jesus did not belong to a nice, clean world of middle-class respectability, but rather he belonged to a family of murderers, cheats, cowards, adulterers, and liars. He belonged to us and came to help us. No wonder why he came to a bad end and gave us some hope. Paul says it another way in 2 Corinthians 11.30. If I boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. I think there's at least, as we conclude here, I think there's at least three things we can take away from this passage. First, and probably hardest, you may wait far longer than you ever thought you should or could for relief from your situation or suffering. You may wait far longer than you thought you could. That a good God would never allow your particular problems to continue at their current intensity for any longer. My, probably one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, follows the story of a young man growing into adulthood in a small town. He's smart, he's talented, he's unselfish, with big dreams for his future outside of the small town. Over and over again, this young man has to put away his desires for his grand future to help those around him he makes the unselfish choices that he feels obligated to make and he presses on as he grows into early middle age he sees the dreams of his youth slip further and further away while resentment and anger grows inside of him even undetected by him he's lived his whole life with a dream and a hope that over the next hill he will be will be his relief from the pressures forced upon him and that he has admirably borne for the sake of others around him when his hope of escaping to a better existence seems to be permanently slipping away forever, and further, that no one seems to recognize as the sacrifices or appreciate what he has done for them, he snaps, and he decides to take his own life. I've never liked the title of Frank Capra's film, It's a Wonderful Life. But I have always seen far too much of myself in Jimmy Stewart's George Bailey. George Bailey says, I'm tired of waiting, I'm out. Christian, persevere in your waiting. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Luke 6, verse 22, Jesus takes it further and says, Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full right now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Christians, we wait with a hope and a promise. Persevere. Second, you may not recognize your saving grace when it comes. Just as the Israelites did not recognize Jesus, many of them did not. Because they had their own internal checklist, twisted checklist. A mix of prophecies, patriotism, and racism that marinated for centuries. What stands in your way of seeing Jesus at work is that your love of comfort Is it your desire to be thought well of and respected by your neighbors and co-workers? What kinds of bedrock beliefs are stuck deep down in your soul that keep you from joining God in his work right now? Are you blinded by materialism? Do you think that only those that are worth something have something? And none of us would probably ever utter that out loud. But your actions tell the true story. Are you overburdened with busyness? Are you too busy figuring out tiny little minutiae of every little piece of theology all the while Jesus is working around you? What is keeping you from joining the Messiah in his grand plan right now? How are you not seeing him? Finally, and most encouragingly, if you are here today and think that you are too damaged for God to use, that you can't possibly be of any use to your Creator, that at best your sins might be forgiven by Jesus' work on the cross, but you are too broken for God's great and grand plans. Think again. We serve a very subversive God. He chooses the weak, the poor, the unwanted. If you think that God only uses the handsome, talented people with righteous families, you are wrong. Read your Bible. Our holy scriptures are full of God passing over those whom society has deemed worthy in order to embrace the weak. It may very well be that your shortcomings are what make you the best channel for God to use in his plan. Look, Christmas messes with our heads, does it not? Not the one in the the scriptures, but the one everywhere else around us. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Really? Not for many. Some of you have just finished classes. And you're going to go home to families that you may feel that you don't know anymore, that you don't share their values anymore, and that you feel an outsider in. Others have just spent another 40 to 80 hours a week toiling away at that job that you've been doing for years, only to now take time off to face a family that you feel that you are failing, or you're losing track of, or you don't know anymore. Or you might be grieving the family you never had, or the family you lost today. For some of us, the pressure in this season to be happy is too much to bear. Christ coming to win us back from the clutches of sin and death, and the story of Christmas is lost to all of society, trying to act like we are full, happy, and settled. We're just trying. Don't be fooled, friends, for now we wait. Come thou long-expected Jesus is what we're going to sing in a little bit. That's our cry. Tom Wright says this regarding our passage today. Regarding Jesus, no point in arriving in comfort when the world is in misery. No point in having an easy life when the world suffers violence and injustice. If he, is to be, if he is to be Emmanuel, God with us, he must be with us where the pain is. That's what this chapter is about. Church, our God draws near to us in Jesus' birth. His family tree welcomes us all in. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let's pray. God, by the power of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, we plead with you for strength and peace in our current waiting period. We ask for wisdom to see beyond the undetected sins of our hearts. God, give us freedom from our own inward bias to the world around us. Help us to stop listening to the world telling us that we are unworthy and help us to see our part in your salvation. Help us to find joy this Christmas, even if we carry sorrow for now. In Jesus' name, amen.